Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the 12th edition of Credit Crunch, part of the FIC Focus podcast series. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is colleague Sam Geyer. Uh, before diving in, a little public service announcement. If you're a new or regular listener and like what we're doing at FIC Focus, please take a moment to follow, comment, and share, as that helps us keep bringing great guests and content to you. Uh, speaking of great guests, today we're very excited to shake things up a little bit and talk about structured product. Few better in the world, frankly, to walk through that landscape than today's guest, Jack Ross. Jack is managing partner over at and co-founder over at Waterfall Asset Management, leader in the structured investment space with about 13 billion in assets under management. Jack's been doing structured products since, well, since his Drexel Burnham Lambert days. And for anybody that knows who Drexel is, you know he's been doing it for a little while. So let's go ahead and welcome him in, Mr. Jack Ross. Very thrilled to have you here today. Thanks for joining us on Credit Crunch. Morning, Noel. And uh, yes, I am that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, experience is a wonderful thing. So. Given that, maybe we can start right from the beginning. You know, you've really been engaged in and sort of at the forefront of the evolution in the ABS or, or asset-backed security space for almost four decades. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar asset class. And yet outside of maybe some of the mortgage-backed structures that people get acquainted with through crisis, it's really an asset class that flies under the radar. So maybe you can walk me through uh, and get us, you know, sort of a, acquainted with those early years, what maybe motivated those first deals. and and how you think about the growth and evolution since. Sure. Um, so I started out as Drexel, as you, at Drexel, as you mentioned, in the financial institutions group. And uh, we stumbled on a savings and loan back then on the West Coast that was really good at making car loans and not very good at making mortgages. And the regulatory environment was such that they had to have uh, over half their assets in mortgages. And so they, uh, they met with us and said, we have to get these car loans off our books. The securitization market was really nascent. Only three asset classes had been securitized at that point, mortgages, car loans, and credit cards. And so we literally did the very first securitization of subprime auto loans for this particular savings and loan. Um, I did a second deal for them. Uh, this was back in uh, the mid eighties. Um, and so having done two deals, I was deemed an expert uh, and got calls uh, from a number of uh, investment banks that wanted to get into the space, ended up joining Merrill Lynch in 1987, where I was joined by Tom Capassi, who was in the mortgage-backed area there. And Merrill said to us quite kindly, go make us number one in the asset-backed market. We're number one in every other fixed income category as an underwriter. Uh, so the, the market landscape back then was Solomon Brothers and a firm called First Boston were the leaders. Solomon Brothers was the liars poker crowd led by Lou Ranieri. And first Boston was led by a guy by the name of Larry Fink. And so as two young, you know, 30 year old uh, bankers, that was quite a daunting task was to compete with those two gentlemen. And so we decided not to, and we actually went a very different direction. And we went to Merrill's finance company clients and said, wouldn't you like AAA rated funding for your finance company? And the answer invariably came back, yes, but there was always a however, and the however was, we don't have prime mortgages, credit cards, or auto loans. We have other financial assets. Can we create bonds around these? And so trying to build a business, of course, our answer was absolutely, give us a shot, and they did. Uh, and so we did the very first securitization, for gosh, about 30 different sectors over the 90s, um, including the first Caterpillar construction deal, John Deere tractor deal, Marriott timeshares, household finance for the first subprime mortgage securitization. Uh, don't give me, uh, uh, <laughs> don't blame the crisis on me. We just created the tool um, and, and many other sectors uh, since then. Today, there are about 65 different sectors. And Noel, as you mentioned, the market went from about $10 billion to upwards of $4 trillion today. So I maybe want to dig into some of that a little bit. I mean, is, so it's when you're sort of launching into a new space like that or, or any of those 30 new spaces, 
uh, that you're at the forefront of. Like, what's the process? Is I mean, is it just sort of a, a you know, a, a boilerplate? Like, once you design it, you can drop just about anything in, or does everything sort of require its own unique sort of recipe? No, it's all custom, and it's custom around the assets themselves, and frankly, the cash flows that will generated by the assets that go into the bond. And so, the first thing you have to do is understand how assets are are made, originated. How are they serviced, meaning collected? Uh, what's the legal infrastructure around that asset class? Uh, and so then you come up with a structure that makes the most sense. And there are various ways of, of structuring, and most of which we, we pioneered as, as we were learning as we were going along. And then, of course, you have to take it to the rating agencies and convince them that the assets are of, of a high enough quality to obtain uh, the ratings that you're looking for. So it's a multidimensional process. Uh, and as bankers, we learn the businesses from the ground up, uh, which has really been been very helpful for us as we flip from the sell side to the buy side. Yeah, I imagine the the process back then was a little bit different in terms of working with the agencies, because I think in recent years, it's almost become reverse engineering, knowing what the agencies expect, whereas back then I'm suspecting it was a little bit of education in terms of how these things work in order to get them on board. We were all learning together. All of us, the rating agencies, <laughs> the lawyers, the, the, the market, the investors, you know, the last piece was then to go out onto the road and literally do a road show for each one of these transactions and meet with the largest institutional investors in the world to convince them of, of the credit quality that, uh, that we had created. So you're still working off those frequent flyer miles today, it sounds like. Yes, sir. Uh, so, so maybe as we dig in, so you'd mentioned sort of we talk about 65 sectors. It's a pretty broad universe. I mean, and frankly, the number kind of amazes me. But as you're combing through so many process or products now as sort of on the asset management side, you know, a lot of them probably pretty esoteric. How do you sort of think about and define and sort between sort of the relative value from one to the other? What does that due diligence process look like? Yeah, so you hear the words best relative value around waterfall all the time. And for us, it's really across three different dimensions. Uh, so the dimensions are firstly sectors. Uh, we talked about 65 different sectors. We break them into what we call food groups around here. And the food groups for us are residential mortgage credit, commercial mortgage credit, the consumer, small business, and then other, which includes transportation and a lot of the esoteric stuff that, that you mentioned. The second dimension for relative value here is sourcing. So do you buy bonds in the secondary market? Do you buy bonds in the new issue market? Or something that, that we should spend a little time on is the private credit arena around structured credit. We lend money to specialty finance companies and we also buy loans directly from them and create our own securitizations. We've done probably about $20 billion of securitizations at Waterfall over the last uh, four or five years uh, so we're an active issuer ourselves, really to create term funding around the assets that we purchase. And then the last dimension for us is geography. Uh, so we are truly a global firm headquartered here in New York, covering North America. And we have an office in London, uh, as well as an office in Hong Kong covering uh, the Asia Pacific. Yeah, so I may be picking up on the, the private credit piece since you bring it up. I mean, and obviously we've seen that space grow tremendously and you're seeing a lot of the big players in that space sort of dividing their book between direct lending and structured product. I mean, even you know a week or two ago, we got the news with KKR and the PayPal deal there. So I guess, how do you think about them as entrance into the marketplace do you think that's positive for the asset class? Does it sort of change the performance characteristics or, or you know, the investment practices that they're deploying versus what you might be sort of uh, acclimated to? Yeah, uh, I mean, not to denigrate the large players, but I, I really consider them as tourists. Uh, you know, they come in when there's a very large transaction. Um, they learn very quickly and they certainly have a deep bench of people. Uh, but it's really around a specific large transaction that, that comes into the market. Um, on a regular basis, we, we don't see the, the mega players. And I would say that our focus is more in the middle market, if you will. So that would be transactions of 50 million to 200 million size. And, and, and so, you know, they're, they're, that's just too small for them. They're raising billions of dollars of, of funds. Uh, from their clients and they have to deploy it, uh, you know, in, in larger quantities than that. So uh, I would say, generally speaking, 
you know, it's really a market of, of specialists, uh, and there's only a handful of them uh, in North America and even a, a smaller amount in Europe. And so the advantage, I guess, of doing private credit is, is, you know, you're able to allocate a fair amount more capital. Are you holding the whole cap stack in that situation or are you just not even creating a cap stack? How does that work? Yeah. So private credit in our world is, is really creating a private securitization between us and the issuer, that being the specialty finance company. And up front, we do a lot of due diligence, obviously, on the assets and, and really go through the, the data history of, of, uh, of, of this particular lender. And of course, comparing that to all the other lenders that, uh, that we have in, in terms of our database of, of asset performance. Um, and, and then we come up with uh, what we think will be the default rate for the assets that they are originating and, and that will be inter- originating into our, our loan as security. Um, and then we structure around what we believe to be the, uh, the, the default rate. and and we always use covenants. Uh, covenants, there is no such thing as covenant light in our world. Always use covenants, both at the corporate level for the specialty finance company, but really more importantly at the asset level, where we put in uh, performance triggers based upon experience of defaults and delinquencies. And if delinquencies and defaults come in higher than what we expect them to be, uh, something happens uh, when they hit that trigger. And, and the first line of defense is we reduce our advance rate. So whereas we may have lent them 70 cents on the dollar on the onset, maybe it goes down to 60 or 50 cents on the dollar uh, so that we're better protected. And if defaults continue to rise and hits what we call the second level trigger, uh, then the, the, the loan is terminated uh, and then we, we go into rapid amortization. Um, and you asked where in, in the capital stack are we? Um, it, it's one of two places. Either we'll take the entirety of the loan. So all, all the entire, we call it a stretch senior, where it's kind of a senior and a mez in one loan. Um, or in other cases, a bank will do the senior and will be in the mez position. So, uh, Jack, turning back to kind of that evolution that you've talked about for the asset class, I'm curious on the technology side. We've had obviously a lot of talk around uh, AI over the past couple of months and how companies in the financial industry are are trying to adopt that and integrate that into their workflow and just thinking through kind of your asset class in general and how like data intensive the analytical process must be i'm just wondering like what role technology plays in the process for you guys right now in terms of your investment making decisions and and how do you see that evolving if at all yeah no that's that's a great question sam because this is very data intensive and and we need to draw conclusions about how assets will perform in the future i will tell you that up until about three four years ago we were always sort of a rear view mirror market if you will so we would we would look at history uh, and we would look at how did assets perform over time and then extrapolate that into the future you know pretty simplistic i guess you might say um but you know, uh, a lot of data analyzed in, in terms of history. The, we have really at Waterfall, given the, the breadth of, of, uh, of the data that we have access to, we've turned to the, looking out the front of the car. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, Sam, is that we're looking at attributes and trying to correlate those attributes to potential default and prepayment in loans going forward. And so what we wanna have is really a customized view of what that loss performance will look like going forward. And you mentioned AI, AI is a very powerful tool to be able to come up with these correlations uh, and and predictions going forward on on asset performance. Now, a big word of warning, uh, as we have found, is that AI can take you down a path that isn't reality. Uh, the numbers are right. The numbers uh, make sense from an AI standpoint, but when you actually step back away from the conclusions, they're not always right. So you do need that element of art, and and our 40-ish years of experience certainly helps in that. Um, and so you you have to sort of overlay the the exactness of AI with the art and the experience to really come up with uh, you know the full picture, if you will. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, d- I've definitely noticed that even just with basic, you know, chat GPT type uh, AI that you, you play around with every now and then. But I guess speaking more broadly in terms of, you know, the structured credit market, like where are you seeing innovation right now? 
whether that's in terms of like overall product creation. Are you mentioned? Obviously, we're at like around 65 sectors. Um, you know, are you seeing maybe some new products being put out in the market, or you know, that could also be maybe some innovation in the overall investment process? Yeah, I, I think that um, we're, we're we're nearing the tag ends here. Uh, you know, I, I, we we've been at this for a long time. Believe me, every banker has gone to every possible uh, financial asset and tried to figure out how we can create a uh, you know, a mousetrap that'll allow us to put it into a bond and, and get the rating agencies to rate such a bond. Uh, but I will say that the private markets are, are where things are interesting are happening. Uh, and, and people go to the private markets in our realm for a couple of different reasons. One, there might be, they're too small. They don't have the history. They're a young company. They don't have the history to bring to the rating agencies. So they, they sort of season, if you will, in the private markets and then maybe get large enough with some history and they go to the, the public markets. They might be lending in an asset class that will never be securitized. Um, and and you know, we can talk about an example of that. Or, and, and this is a more recent trend, the securitization markets have fallen down on issuers in 2020 and again in 2022, meaning that it wasn't really there for them. They couldn't, they didn't have certainty in terms of execution into the public markets because the institutional investor base wasn't there to buy the bonds, um, maybe in the triple A's, maybe in the MES, but it, it, the markets were dislocated. And so those frequent issuers have now come to people like us and said, we'd like to complement our securitization program with a, a loan from you, maybe in conjunction with a bank, uh, as I mentioned earlier, senior and MES, um, such that they have certainty with one counterparty, they know they'll have their financing, and then they'll go to the securitization markets, which is cheaper than our loan, generally speaking. But when you're dealing with one counterparty who, who will deliver, um, you know, you have the certainty of execution. You know, there's, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, war story on, a, on a, a new asset class, if that's of interest. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sure you guys have heard all about payday loans. Uh, and, you know, that, that was a you know, a loan that was taken out by uh, lower income individuals where something went wrong. Their car broke down, their refrigerator broke, the air conditioner broke, and they didn't have the money on hand, you know, to, to make the repair so that they could, uh, you know, live their lives. And, and by the way, that's probably at least 30% of Americans do not have the money in the bank to handle such a, such a surprise expense. And so they went to these you know, high cost payday lenders who would lend them money to tie them over to their next payday, hence, hence the name. Um, and, and so they, these loans had very high interest rates, very high fees and very poor disclosure. And so the government led by the CFPB came in and, and basically shut the whole market down. They said it was abusive um, and, and people were, were, unsophisticated people were being taken advantage of by these lenders. Well, that's all true. However, now you've taken the liquidity opportunity away from 30% of Americans who can't borrow to fix that car or that refrigerator that I just mentioned. So, you know, several companies have, have bubbled up from the VC community and, and we have close relations with, with venture capitalists to really have our ear to the ground as to what's new in, in FinTech. Um, and so this new asset class called payroll deduction loans have, have come along. Um, and there's a handful of lenders in that space. And the, the category is maybe three years old. Um, and basically it's to enable hourly wage earners to borrow against the wages they've already earned, but they haven't received yet. So they might get paid every two weeks or once a month. Uh, and then that car breaks down before they get the paycheck. And what do they do? Uh, and, and so they go to these, these lenders who have a window into their, their earned wages and lend them or advance them more accurately uh, against their, their earned wages. And, and so it's a, an interesting market. We've lent money uh, collateralized by these advances to these uh, new specialty finance companies. Um, and it's, it's an exciting product, which is really uh, you know, helping out uh, lower income Americans to sort of tie them over uh, when the crisis hits. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I figured we were probably right around there in terms of, you know, seeing the end of some of that innovation, but it's, it's interesting to hear that we still have that going on. 
I guess getting back real quick to you mentioned, obviously, private markets are, are the bigger area. I'm just wondering, like, can I get your thoughts on like returns, what you'd expect for those private securities and the private market versus like traditional public uh, securities? Yeah, so our, our private lending, um, if, if you look at the multiple you get over expected defaults, uh, you know, based on the rating agency criteria, you, you sort of end up in a double B, triple B-ish risk. Um, and then if you compare the spread that we charge uh, over SOFR for those loans versus the comparable execution in the securities market, it, it runs anywhere from two to 400 basis points in excess spread you get for uh, the brain damage, if you will, to to create these uh, these private deals. Gotcha. And then just real quick, I guess, getting back to that too, in terms of like the the amount of risk and like duration that you're seeing with those securities, how how does that differ between private public market, or do you not see much of a difference there? Yeah, it's it's similar. Um, the private deals are generally a little shorter, um, and they're they're floating rate, so you're not really taking any any sort of interest rate risk in those transactions. Um, so it's uh, it's, it's and it cash flows. It cash flows right from the get-go. So one of the interesting comparisons we always get is how do we compare corporate private credit or direct lending to what we do in, in the structured arena? And and first of all, as I mentioned, our deals are totally secure. So there's uh, collateral securing all of our loans. Where as we know in the direct lending space, they're typically unsecured uh, directly to the corporation. Our deals are bankruptcy remote. You know, proof. You put you put the assets in just like a securitization. You you separate the assets from the uh, the originator. And again, we always have covenants. Uh, and so, you know, we think that um, you know we're able to really protect ourselves um, in the downside as we head to uh, what's likely to be a, a slowdown environment in our economy. Um, you know, these covenants are really there uh, to protect us, uh, as we talked about earlier. You know, if the assets don't perform, or if, in fact, especially finance company uh, has trouble itself. Maybe changing gears a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that we see in credit more broadly is is that you know there's usually some sort of scale advantage, particularly for more niche areas uh, of the credit market. So I'm trying to get a sense in terms of structured product. Is that something that's still true there, where maybe certain kinds of deals are really only accessible to some of the larger players? Or is this like sort of an asset class where I can basically put a shingle up in my garage and, and compete? We think uh, size matters. Uh, absolutely, Noel. Um, and, and I would say it, it matters in, in a couple of different ways. Number one, we are a solutions provider to specialty finance companies. And what I mean by that is, as I said earlier, we'll lend them money, we'll buy their loans and securitize them ourselves, or we'll buy their bonds. So, so we do it all for them. Um, and so that's why the relationship is so important to us. And we have direct relationships with CFOs and, and CEOs of these specialty finance companies. So we're able to solve their problems in part because of our sophistication and experience, but in part because of our size. Uh, so, so if they want to sell you know, a, 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 a $300 million pool of assets and securitize it, borrow against it, um, or, or, or sell it to us, we, we could do all the above. And, and size for us, you know, really is, uh, is, is not an issue. And they like to only deal with one counterparty. You know, again, back to what I mentioned earlier, when they come to the public markets, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot in, in these times, whether they're going to be able to execute the deal. Um, and so for them, it's, uh, you know, having one counterparty take, off, take the risk off their hands of funding or the actual asset risk you know, is beneficial. Um, the, other, the other answer to your question on size, we mentioned earlier data and technology. Well, we make a lot of investments here in terms of our, our data platform, uh, our data analytics, as well as the technology that we use to monitor markets and, and monitor, uh, you know, sectors of the economy. Uh, and, and that costs a lot of money. Uh, and, and so, you know, two guys, uh, you know, in a Bloomberg can't do all that. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're unable to have the level of sophistication that we have uh, in terms of, of investing in this space. You know, this is not a close your eyes, throw it at the dartboard kind of market and hope that the secular trends bail you out. 
This is idiosyncratic investing. This is understand your asset, understand your pool. And you know, the commercial real estate market is, is probably the best example of what I just said. If you don't know that property, if you don't know who the tenants are, if you don't know, you know what building across the street just sold for or what tenant just left, you're gonna miss the boat with, with the dartboard approach. Yeah, and definitely an area that uh, is worth talking about a little bit more in a few moments. But I wanted to first get a sense, I mean, one of the areas in which, uh, you know, Waterfall sort of specializes is really in that secondary distress space, which I think sort of pulls in a lot of the characteristics that you just mentioned. But maybe walk me through in terms of, you know, what's the difference in terms of how you approach maybe something that's already out there and, and trading at deeply discounted levels versus maybe the due diligence process when you're just getting into the primary? Yeah, so you know, having your hand on the asset, um, you can then do specific asset level diligence. And, and you know, there, there are two kinds of transactions in our market. There's the law of large numbers where you have thousands of obligors like car loans or home equity loans or student loans, what have you. And there one asset doesn't matter or even a handful of assets doesn't matter. So you're really looking at, you know, a, a marketplace and a, and a sector of the economy to determine the projection going forward. The other is, is uh, you know, large lumpy asset classes like commercial real estate, like aircraft, you know, where you really have to drill into the individual assets to make your assessment of the risk of a particular transaction. So, you know, you say something's trading at, at uh, you know, a deep discount, you gotta understand why, obviously. In the law of large numbers case, it's usually liquidity that's the issue. So if you look back at March of 2020, we had triple B and single A bonds trading at 70, 80 cents on the dollar that were perfectly money good, but the money managers and the REITs were selling off those bonds because they had to raise liquidity. So, you know, that's that's typically when when law of large number classes trade at significant discounts is because you have a forced seller or a group of forced sellers that create the need for liquidity and and it's typically not asset performance. Um, except, of course, during a, a recession time where, where, you know, people are concerned about asset performance. Um, but the law of large numbers deals uh, really rise and fall, for the most part, on liquidity and what's happening in sister markets. The lumpier trades, like the commercial real estate, it's because an asset is underperforming or is expected to underperform, and that's why it's trading at a significant discount. You know, an office building in San Francisco, obviously, you know, big concerns about, about the outcome of, of those loans, hence the discount. So maybe sort of piggybacking off that a little bit, I mean, I guess one of the, the things that I'm curious as well is, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the evolution of the, the product side of the marketplace, but uh, in terms of just building institutional awareness and institutional appetite uh, for the assets in the market, and you talk about them being used maybe a little bit as, as sort of a liquidity safety valve, uh, in times of stress, how have you seen sort of the institutional investors sort of adjust over the years in terms of in incorporating structured product into their allocation decisions, et cetera? Is it materially different? Is there still sort of this apprehension? Yeah, look, we were the we were the center of the nuclear holocaust in in the GFC, uh, you know, once again, uh, and. and and, and so um, people's careers got impacted by the fact that they invested in AAA rated bonds that turned out to be a zero. Uh, if you think about those, you know, you know, transactions in the subprime space that that uh, were investment grade bonds that turned out to be worth nothing. Um, so, you know, it's taken a long time. You know, we're now we're now 15 years out uh, for some of that pain to, to, to be numbed, I guess you'd, you'd call it. Um, but I would say, you know, it's a $4 trillion market. It's, it's you know, actively traded. Uh, every large institution certainly has exposure. Um, you know, they may continue to stay away from anything subprime or, uh, or, or, you know, some of the sectors that concern them. But, but generally speaking, they're all in. Everyone's in, in this market. I, I think, you know, for us, don't forget, we're selling it to an investor base that isn't in this market. So typically our clients are pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and, and the like. And so we're still doing that education today. 40 years later, I'm sitting in front of investors, educating them on what's a structured credit bond 
and and you know how do the cash flows work and and all that sort of thing um many of them are there they get it the you know they're very sophisticated but many are not uh and so you know we're still providing a lot of of seminar type education to people on structured credit and and the benefits of, of a complement to corporate credit interesting so yeah i mean that, that is kind of fascinating to think about sort of uh, but i mean me as a, a corporate person for the last 20 plus years, I guess sort of I, I understand that because I have sort of a, a passing acquaintance with it and sort of understand the waterfalls and that sort of thing. But I yeah. wouldn't be able to sort of dive deep into the details except for, well, here with you. But uh, maybe let's kind of dive in a little bit to the because we referenced it a couple of times now, the commercial real estate side, which is obviously in focus here uh, these days after sort of uh, the pandemic and the, the return to office sort of mandates that have had mixed uh, success, I guess, depending on where you're at. In terms of what's going on there, not only with your exposure through Waterfall, but you guys are obviously, uh, you have the relationship with Ready Capital as well. Uh, how do you sort of think about that marketplace? How do you go about sort of saying, this is where we do want to be and where we don't want to be? Because it can't all be bad, right? The, the beauty of, of today's market is that the market and, and when I say the market, it's everything. It's equities, it's corporate bonds, it's it's uh, the the, uh, the CMBS market. Every market is painting office with a very broad paintbrush that every loan is going to come to maturity and default. Every loan on every property. Now, that's great for us because we're bond pickers and and we're we go deep into the weeds. We have this incredible model uh, that we've created over the years where we track every single property on every single street corner in every single city that is in a CMBS deal. And we know the tenants, we know the prices of which they're, they're, they're tenanting at, we know what's happening around that building in terms of sales, ten tenants moving, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a bond pickers market. What I mean by that is that Every building is not going to go to maturity default. Many buildings will be absolutely fine. And then it's about price. You know, where are you in the capital stack and, and how deep will the discount go if the building has to be taken over and sold? And you need to know your sponsors. You need to know who owns the building and, and what's their likely uh, uh, behavior when, when the maturity hits. So, you know, we, we love a market like this. This is, this is, you know, really food on our table in that we can go in and pick among all the discounted bonds that are in the market today and pick out which ones we think will work out absolutely fine and which won't. You know, we had some of our, our best time of it after the GFC when, you know, when you had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, distressed opportunities out there in different sectors. And again, it was, it was all about the data and all about having more information, better information than the market. If you're a trader on a desk, you just don't have that information. So you're just, you know, making broad-based assumptions. Um, and and so that's that's really a, a big advantage for us is being able to drill in. And, you know, everyone believes today that all commercial real estate is, you know, has issues. Um, and there are many parts of the commercial real estate market like multifamily and industrial and the hotels that are performing really quite well right now. Do you ever get into like a loan to own situation? Do you ever look at something and say, hey, actually, we want to own the physical property or, or you say, listen, we just want to be in the paper side? I would say that that we do have uh, capability here and we have used it in the past to actually uh, take over uh, ownership of properties. Um, and typically that's a situation where the property needs some some work, some help to, to get it to, to be retenanted. Uh, and, and we have done that in the past. So keeping on the topic of, you know, risk, I, I'm just curious, like from the corporate side right now, what we've been seeing, you know, you've been seeing threats from uh, high yield default rates have been ticking up on our end. Uh, the Fed was a little bit more hawkish at this most recent uh, comments from Chairman Powell and then also just overall regional bank stability being called into question. I'm curious on your end, are, are there particular areas of the structured credit market where you're seeing you know, some elevated risk? And if so, like, what do you see as the biggest threat? Yeah, well, certainly our cousin to what you just described is our CLO market. Um, you know, the CLO market is just a levered play on leveraged loans. Um, so 
everything that you mentioned, Sam, is in play in the CLO market for sure. Uh, you know, we have seen some spread widening in the CLO market, certainly with impending concerns around uh, what you just described. Now, it's it hasn't really hit in any significant way in terms of defaults. Yeah, it's up a little, but but nothing to the extent that that what we're ultimately expecting to happen as this thing, you know, plays through in, in terms of a slowdown. Um, you know, uh, we've heard in the past how how well protected CLOs are uh, from a structural standpoint, and they certainly are. The you know, they're they're I would say the investment grade bonds are highly highly unlikely to ever attach as a result of the structural elements and the credit support that you have, you know, in these transactions. Um, but when you delve down into the below investment grade bonds and and the equity, um, we would say that that they all they will not all survive uh you know the default cycle that that you're describing now you know you, you hear people say all the time well look at what happened in the gfc and and every clo paid off absolutely true but let's look at the default cycle during the gfc it was pronounced but it was fast and and so you had it go up very rapidly and down very rapidly well clos readjust in that kind of environment your triggers get repaired your collateral is okay and and you move on and you ultimately you get paid off that's absolutely true but sam if your belief is and this is the belief at waterfall is that this is will be a more protracted cycle not as violent not as high um that's poison to a clo uh a long-term modest slowdown which causes defaults over an extended period of time will cause these triggers to hit the cash flows to be shut off over a protracted period of time. And you're not going to be able to earn back the, the over collateralization to get you to reset like you did in the GFC. And so that's a, that's a scenario. If that's what you believe will take place, then your below investment grade and your equity and CLOs um certainly will be challenged uh and you're really gonna have to drill in to the manager and the pool of assets and the credits and all that sort of thing to pick out the those that are gonna be okay and, and those that won't gotcha yeah no i mean I, I feel like a lot of the conversation especially with clos recently and, and i know you mentioned on your side uh specifically for cov light loans you guys try and keep away from cov light but do you see the, those CovLite restrictions and how dominant they are in the overall market affecting, you know, other buy side firms from, you know, maybe conversations you've had in terms of, you know, these firms trying to target that risk in a way? Well, it's a concern. We, you know, we're, we're talking about uncharted territory. We haven't had a default cycle with with the preponderance of covenant light loans. Uh, and so it's just going to take them the individual lender uh longer to get at the at the borrower because they're not going to hit a, a a covenant uh you know early enough so that you can uh you know you can s uh, save or restructure the situation it's going to be very late in the game maybe at bankruptcy when you actually are able to get in there uh and and actually do something about about the situation so yeah it's definitely a concern um you know these this is an unprecedented marketplace don't forget where clos own you know, such a large percentage of the leverage loan market, uh, as well as you know, private funds. Back in the day, it was banks. You know, it was Citibank that led the led the leverage loan, or 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 Bank of America, or whomever. They had restructuring teams, have restructuring teams in house to deal with these situations, uh, and they typically had covenants to deal with them sooner. This is going to be interesting, and in that. CLOs have the preponderance of loans and they don't have restructuring teams in-house. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. It, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess for what it's worth, I mean, our view uh, is sort of similar in terms of we get something more like that early 2000s distress cycle where it's two, three, three and a half years in terms of sort of this rolling cascade of crises as it hits different sectors. So I think we're sort of in the same camp there. I guess that does bring sort of to mind in terms of when you're looking for an environment like that. I mean, we talked a lot about asset selection there. Is there anything else you think about in terms of managing in that kind of environment in terms of the type of weighted average life exposures you're taking or, or those sorts of things where you're, where you're just saying, listen, we're, we're a little bit conservative here in terms of what the risk backdrop is. 
Yeah, so so our philosophy is that you know, we for every single asset that we put on the books here, we do three different scenarios of analyses for that bond or that loan. Um, we look at the base case. So what do we expect to happen to this particular pool of assets and how, as it goes through the waterfall of the structure, how, how does our bond uh, perform in that? We then look at the upside, don't spend a lot of time on that, obviously, but most importantly, we look at the downside or the recession case and we look and see how will that pool of assets perform in a recession? How high will defaults go? What does that mean in terms of our attachment point in the structure? Um, and so what we do is we avoid what we call cliff bonds. Cliff bonds, so you, you get the, the Bloomberg message from the trader on the street and the big headline says, you know, 12% yield uh, on this bond, you know, hurry up and, and get it. Well, I think it is a 12% yield in his rosy base case. Um, and, and, but when you peel off the, the, the layers of the onion, what you find is that if defaults rise by 50% or 100%, the bond falls off the cliff, and, and meaning the, the the yield goes from that maybe 11 or 12, more likely eight or nine, um, down to zero or negative. That's not what we look to buy here at Waterfall. We're looking to hit singles and doubles. We're not looking for grand slam home runs, and we're certainly not looking for you know bonds that will significantly underperform in a recession. We're looking for you know something that's well protected by structure. And by price, don't forget if you buy something at a discount, that adds another measure of protection uh, uh, in the in the security that you're purchasing. So, and real quick, getting back to kind of the the Fed and and their comments specifically around how you know we could see two more hikes through the end of the year, and then rates may stay a little bit higher for longer. Um, how do you see that that monetary policy factoring into how you evaluate an opportunity? And do certain uh, assets look better or worse in that high interest rate environment? You know, maybe outside of the CLO market where we've already talked about. Yeah, so we're we're not macro guys. Um, you know, we're 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 you know we read the journal and we talk to analysts. You know, about about the future of the economy and all that, and we have a view in house. But you know, again, for us, it goes back to idiosyncratic asset level selection and structure. Um, I will tell you, though, uh, you know, we haven't talked about the consumer much, but the consumer certainly is a point, uh, uh, really something that's really important here at Waterfall. We do have allocated quite a bit at times to consumer assets. Um, and, and there, it's a really interesting story right now. The story right now is if you look back over the last 40, 50 years of data, what you'll find is consumer defaults are highly correlated to unemployment. Mind you, I didn't say interest rates. I said unemployment. And those two curves lie right on top of each other over the course of the last 50 years. If you look at the data right now, and I hate to use these words, but it is different right now. We see the two different worlds right now in terms of consumer credit performance. You see the prime world, so the, the white collar uh, individuals that are, are better off in, in, in terms of their financial wherewithal, they're performing exactly as you would expect them to perform in a 3.7% unemployment environment. They're doing fine and no signs of deterioration there. The other side of the fence, the lower income uh, uh, individuals are actually performing as bad as they were performing right after the GFC. So defaults and delinquencies have gone up significantly over the last couple of years and they continue to, to in, in, in levels that, that are concerning. And again, 3.7% unemployment, two jobs available for every unemployed person, uh, hourly wages are up quite nicely, you would think they would be okay. The obvious question is why is it different this time? It's because of inflation. They're getting hurt by inflation in rent, in food, and in gas to put in their cars so they can go to work. Now the Fed ignores those, you know, non uh, non core areas of of inflation when it when it focuses on, you know, what's really the true core inflation. But these people spend 80 or more percent of their wages on those three areas, and so they struggle at the end of the month to make that car payment or to make that that home improvement payment or what have you, uh, because they're spending so much money 
on those three areas uh, on, a, on a monthly basis. So the consumer is certainly of concern right now. Of course, we have uh, weighted our portfolios more towards the prime side and away from the subprime side. Uh, but you know what happens in markets like this is quite interesting. What do the lenders do? Well, the lenders shrink their lending box, whereas they may have lent to 650 and below FICO scores. Now they'll only do uh, 680 and below, for example. Or, or they'll lower the loan to value on a car loan where they may have lent you, you know, the full value of the car. Now they require a down payment. So um, the lenders certainly have responded here over the last six months to make the loans more secure, uh, which will likely lead to better performance for this particular vintage of loans than maybe loans that were made a year ago when they weren't so convinced that this performance would be uh, uh, so challenging for the subprime borrower. Yeah, a little bit uh, disheartening on that right. note. Uh, maybe we can shift gears a little bit, though, and, and sort of talk about geography, because that's another thing we really haven't touched on here. Uh, I think a lot of the conversation here has really kind of been very U.S.-centric. Do you guys think about uh, European markets, some of these other markets where you have the opportunity to do structured products? How do you evaluate them relative to the U.S. opportunity? Yeah, so um, we do have uh, a very active business in, in Europe. Uh, our London office has uh, been open uh, for seven years now. Um, and it it's does the same thing as, as we do in New York for North America. We're looking for opportunities in bonds and in loans and in lending. Um, and, and so there are very interesting opportunities in Europe. Um, we just opened an, a year ago, opened an office in Hong Kong and, and we're pursuing opportunities in the Asia Pacific markets. Um, I will tell you that the competition for what we do for a living in Europe is definitely less than the competition is here. Um, and that's in every element. That's in terms of buying below investment grade bonds. It's in terms of lending to specialty finance companies, buying uh, whole loan pools, definitely fewer players in the European markets. Uh, and so that enables us to uh, buy things at times at better pricing, higher spreads, better covenants, um, with, with uh, you know just less competition. Um, you know we're finding some very interesting opportunities. I would say most pronounced right now on the private credit side. Specialty finance companies in Europe are probably you know five to ten years behind where we are in the U.S. in terms of the developments and the breadth of, of the lending there by specialty finance companies. But I'm sure as you guys have heard from, from other uh, private credit lenders, the banks there have definitely retrenched. Um, the European banks are definitely uh, uh, much more conservative than they have been historically. And that's left more borrowers outside the banking system in Europe, uh, which the specialty finance companies can take advantage of and, and make uh, make attractive loans to um, at at you know pretty attractive pricing. So you know that plays right into our hands and in that we're we're sitting alongside these specialty finance companies, giving them capital uh, so that they can grow and and obviously watching the the credit quality and the you know the uh, our ability to to covenant uh, these relationships such that we're protected. Interesting. So maybe stepping back super macro here, uh, I guess, state of play today, you're looking at the market and, and how is Waterfall sort of evaluating today's opportunity set? And then as you think about what we've already talked about is maybe being an elongated cycle, what do you think uh, that looks like in terms of the other side of that, in terms of where are we today? How are we going to invest through this cycle? Uh, and then where do we end up? That's a, wow, that's a, that's a that's a nuclear bomb of a question I, I, there. I told but, you uh, I'm not an economist. I'm an accountant by training, so uh, take that uh, with a grain of salt. Um, look, I, I think that for us, um, you know, as we look at the markets today, and and as you know, we're we're certainly alongside the consensus that a slowdown is likely to occur in the back half of this year into next year, whether it's a recession or not. I think that's definitional. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we are expecting a slowdown. Um, and so as we sit here today, the technicals are really interesting in our space in that 
yields uh, for investment grade uh, and, and double B uh, securities are, are yielding as high as they've been over the last dozen years. So again, price matters, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in terms of protection. So the entry point here um, you know, is very attractive on both the bond side as well as on the private credit side, because as I mentioned, competition is, is not that strong right now on the private credit side, both in North America as well as in Europe. So you know, we're able to create structures that will uh, withstand um, the, the, a recessionary environment. You know, we like to say, Noel, that you don't run into the fire at times like this. You don't buy that office building in San Francisco. You don't, you don't, you know, go into the the equity of a subprime auto loan transaction and and keep your fingers crossed that it's that you bought it cheap enough so it'll work out. Um, these are times where you play on the edges, things that you're comfortable with fundamentally and yet technically are, are, are battered a bit because of some of the forced selling that goes on or the, the retrenchment that goes on. And, and that's how we've played times like this before, is that we play in idiosyncratic plays, we play up the capital structure in times like this, you don't go down into the equity and, and, and shoot for that maybe 30% return if, if the economy you know, manage, manages to muddle through um, you know, you go more conservative, but you're getting paid really well right now to, to just play in structured credit, you know, in the realm of, uh, of some pretty safe opportunities uh, that are available. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's about as good advice as we can get there. So maybe we just sort of conclude in, in being mindful of time here and sort of think about sort of just waterfall itself and your experience itself. Uh, you know, one of the things we like to do with, with all the guests is sort of, you know, get a little uh, a war story. I know you already gave us one earlier with the payday loans, but maybe over the 40 years, given your really unique sort of view of, of the landscape and how it's evolved, what's sort of the craziest thing you've seen done or perhaps you've probably yourself done in terms of the structures that we've seen come out of this universe? Yeah, I, you know, this there's an area that that has surprised me on how it's developed and that's the securitization of entire businesses i mean we you know we've always looked for ways to separate the asset from the business so that it, it could be higher credit quality as a as a standalone of the assets with a structure around it but over time we have seen securitizations of entire businesses whether it's a you know a dunkin donuts or a fast food uh chain or I mean, a number of billboard company, you know, it, it's really been just a panoply of businesses that have actually been securitized um, as businesses. Uh, and, and so that, you know, you're, you're a corporate credit guy and you're probably wondering, well, how in the world can the business be rated higher than the corporate bonds of the business? Well, you know, through structure, you can you can do that uh, and, and pick up a couple notches. Uh, in terms of the credit quality of the offering versus just issuing unsecured corporate debt. So, you know, that's one that um, we didn't do at, at Merrill. We were not the pioneers on that one. Um, and, and I applaud, uh, you know, the, the people that did. And, and it's developed into a, you know, nice little niche market um, in, in particular cases where, you know, you can isolate the cash flows yet within the realm of the whole business. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And then just maybe a question on culture and, and maybe why start Waterfall, right? I mean, you, you had a very successful career, obviously, at Merrill with Tom. Uh, and then you guys said, you know what, let's do, let's do our own shingle here. You know, one, why do that? And then sort of what do you celebrate in the culture at Waterfall that helps you be so successful? Yeah, uh, so I, I, I go back to my days at, at Wharton uh, going for my MBA and, and a, a buddy of mine at Wharton and I had this dumb idea that coming out of Wharton, we were going to start our own business or we were going to buy a business. And, and this was before LBOs had even been done back then. And, and we figured, well, we can borrow from a bank and we could buy something that seems pretty uh, pretty stable. We we're looking at, a, at an envelope business. Uh, you know, we spent like a whole semester looking at this business. And you know, I did my, I did enough to get by in my classes. But we were focused on buying this envelope business. Was it the ones you had to lick, or was it the ones you could peel and stick? 
It was the ones you had to lick. I don't even think the peel and stick were around back then. This was the 80s. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we finally came to the conclusion in our very last semester that this just wasn't going to happen. And, and so he went off to consulting and I went off to investment banking. And, you know, we put away our entrepreneurial thirst, uh, you know, into the recesses of our minds. And of course, you get into investment banking and, and you're all in and you have to be all in. And, and so... You know, it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a career that was spent at Drexel and Merrill, and, and I didn't think about anything other than getting the next deal, running the department, growing the business. Um, and, and then, lo and behold, long-term capital hit, um, and, and Merrill was going around, you know, got, got decimated in the fixed income department, and they went around saying, you know, which MDs want to take a package, and the package is pretty good. Um, and so, you know, after all these years on the street, I raised my hand and, and said, you know, okay, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know, you know, where I was headed. Um, and I took a couple of years to myself and, and then started to think about what was next. And, and, you know, somehow uh, lightning struck and I had the big idea that there were fallen angels for the first time in the history of the asset back market downgrades, um, downgrades below investment grade even. Um, and so Tom and I remained close friends. He had left in the mid nineties to go off to other firms and, and we had lunch one day and I said, I think I have the big idea for us. Um, and, and, you know, he, he readily agreed that it was interesting. And so we went around hat in hand, um, for almost three years trying to get this idea funded by somebody, you know, a, a, a distress shop, a cedar, a big capital provider. Funny story. So one of the the biggest cedar in the market at that time, I'm not going to name them. We spent months with them and they loved us. They, they thought we could be very successful. They took us to the board and I, we thought we were done. They showed us where we we're going to sit. They showed us where our office space was going to be. We, we thought we were done. And, and the guy calls me back and he goes, I have bad news for you. The board turned you down. Uh, and, and we were just devastated. And we said, well, why, why did the board turn us down? It seemed like we met everybody and it seemed like it was going so well. And he said, well, the board decided that your strategy was only going to be a $100 million strategy, and we want strategies that are going to be in the billions. Well, he was off by a few billion uh, in terms of the recession. Just, just a couple of orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's a all couple. right. So, <laughs> you know, it makes me smile when I think of the story. We're humble guys, and we've succeeded beyond our wildest expectations. But, you know, you just don't know. And then I guess to, to finish it off here, like looking back at your whole career, like what are the two things that, that you're most proud of? Um, any accomplishments that, that you can think of? Yeah, look, you asked about culture. Uh, and number one is, you know, we were fortunate. We had a blank piece of paper. We were three guys in a room managing $14 million when we started. Uh, and, and when you have that blank piece of paper, you can really, you know, do what you want with it in terms of creating the firm. And, and so we had you know, certain principles that we wanted to hold to, to, to bring in the kind of people that we thought could help make us successful. And, and number one was that we had to like the person, we, you know, you, you, you know, you, you spend a lot of time on wall street and you meet a lot of people that, uh, you know, you don't really love, uh, but you go in the foxhole with them and you do what it takes. But, you know, we wanted a, to create a family atmosphere and a group of people that really cared about each other. Um, and, and by the way, to this day, I meet every single person before they start at Waterfall. I'm the last person that says yay or nay on, on that individual. And it's about fit. It's about, you know, by the time they get to me, they're, they're, they could do the job and, and they're, they're probably great at, at it. But I want to make sure that we're holding to that culture of passion and, and collaboration and, and people that really care about that name on the front door. We don't get a pass on anything. You know, we're not BlackRock, we're not PIMCO. We don't get a pass if we stub our toe. Uh, and so we want people who are going to have high standards and be passionate and, and be good people. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of the organization that we've put together one by one as, as we've added people. And, and, you know, I think the second thing, and it's related, is that, you know, I feel like throughout my career, I have to look in the mirror every day. Uh, and I have to feel good about the decisions I make and the person that I've become, you know, as I've, as I've created, uh, you know, Tom and I have created this firm. And, and, you know, we want to make decisions for the right reasons as fiduciaries for our clients and not for the short-term profit of Waterfall. And, and that's something that we're really proud of, that we've been able to, you know, be as successful as we have. 
um, yet holding to those standards. Fantastic. So with that, I think a, a lot of wisdom and, and obviously a lot of knowledge for all of our listeners out there. So with that, let's, Jack, on behalf of Sam and myself, thanks so much for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us on this edition of Credit Crunch. We will see you again next month.